Ben, how are you? Uh, I am. I am feeling very behind. I, I, the, I the, the older you get, the worse jet, the worse jet lag gets. And it's, it's, <laughs> I think I complained about this on a previous episode, so I should stop. But <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling of behind. Uh, I'm sure almost well, some people listening to us know that feeling too. It's not necessarily a good feeling. But anyhow, uh, so uh, we we got a fair bit of, of feedback uh, on on the last show. Um, I actually I thought there was uh, there was a couple of interesting pieces that that I think we both saw on Twitter today uh, when it comes to native advertising. Um, mm. And I thought I, I I I think it got a little confusing at the end in particular, um, especially because there's one point that um, and most this was mostly my fault. There is one specific point that I was that I was really trying to make um, that that is a little a little a little complicated, and that is uh, I think it's really hard to understand uh, a lot of what happened or is happening with news without without understanding that your typical newspaper in particular had a m- local monopoly, like they were. And so this was the source of all their profits because if you were an advertiser and you wanted to reach everyone, like that was your best option. Um, and so, and so they made a lot of money there, but also like that's a, also a tenuous position because like, um, you know, if you upset the wrong people, well, you know, they could give you a lot of, a lot of trouble for, for your kind of, you know, market position. So, um, there's and then there's been some there's been research about this uh, uh you know that one of the reasons this whole sort of like objectivity arose in newspapers and the whole like he said she said and you know newspapers not being opinionated that's actually a relatively recent development and part of that was mm. uh just to not like it, it provided a shield um for the newspaper against the powers that be which which was certainly um th- yes there were altruistic parts of that but it was also expedient politically and uh and similarly um having a line between the editorial side and the business side uh also had a yes it, there was it was good no make no mistake i'm not criticizing it per se um but there was also a big benefit to that in that uh you know you could you could keep you could mollify advertisers you could mollify the people that be um from the other side, and just in general, my point being, I'm not saying that that the motivation to set up a Chinese wall was was a bad one. I think it was a good one. I think lots of journalists um, who who believe in the Chinese wall and who don't want to know, you know, subscription numbers, that sort of stuff. I, I and I think they're very sincere in that, and I'm not at all criticizing that. I'm just saying there were a lot of benefits that went along with this that went along with this attitude, and. I think it's. I don't think you can dismiss those as being as being a motivation. Now you get today the internet, uh, where a lot of the benefits have gone away. There are no more monopolies when it comes to the dissemination of information um, and things like that. That uh, it's it's worthwhile to remember why a lot of these things came about and um, and and to appreciate that just as uh, intense worldwide competition has devalued uh news per se it it also serves as a check on on bias and are and we can certainly have a debate to to say if there's a, a ch- editors are a better check which we don't know anything about or if mm. 
an open market is a better check. Um, and, you know, I think in our conversations previously, you've certainly uh, espoused the benefits of a market in certain cases. And I think there's a case we made here as well. Um, again, I, people can reasonably disagree on this point, but I, I, I don't think, um, I think there's a little more room on the other side than maybe uh, some people appreciate. At least, at least that's obviously my biased opinion. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't think that's, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think there is definitely room for debate. Someone someone tweeted, Diego Petrucci uh, tweeted at me something that I was a little bit uh, surprised to read on this topic that um, time is now uh, ranking their writers by how friendly their writing is to advertisers. And that was, um, it's, it's also said something about how those at the bottom of the list get sacked. Now, I, I I don't think when they established those Chinese walls, I think you used the word like the, the journalists don't want to know about subscriber numbers. I don't think my concern is insulating the journalists from the subscriber numbers. My concern is insulating the journalists from that kind of uh, in, uh, insidious influence. Whereas I, I, I'm not, there's a, there's a difference between journalis- journalistic objectivity in the he said he said she said kind of thing which is almost like a style of writing which is not letting an opinion come into it the thing I, I I'm less interested in that I'm more interested in preventing the opinion that is presented I, I want to make sure or I want to understand if it's not going to be the case that it's the journalist's opinion or it's the editor's opinion where I start to get worried is where I feel like it's the advertiser's opinion like the 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 c- controlling for a style of writing doesn't bother me what worries me is when the motivation it, it, like this this when I saw this tweet I was really quite concerned but um, but here's the thing like so th- I, I'm trying to find it right now um but the tweet in which I first saw this uh, this news come out was a different one than yours. But basically, someone said, "Well, I'm not reading Time anymore." And but that that's that that's the market reaction, right? People are seeing this; they're disgusted with it. So so now they're not going to read Time, or it's going to be in the back of their their mind that that Time has this that Time has this issue. Same thing. There's this article on Gawker, you know, that revealed this. That is. That's the system working like and yeah. so and so my point is not to say that bias will not exist or that advertisers will not have undue fluent undue influence. My point is like there's good and bad that comes with everything and the good of the Internet and the good of this of this marketplace of ideas that the Internet fosters is that it makes it much more likely that things like this policy come to light and and that's an on balance uh, I think that that makes it much better than again things like uh, you know what's whatever sort of influence Rupert Murdoch has on the Wall Street Journal or Jeff Bezos has in the Washington Post or any or Comcast has on NBC. Yeah, I I I grant you that. In I I grant you that. I mean, it cuts both ways. Oh, I, I remember back. Yeah back to our conversation about how 
we talk about uh, like folks like us, folks like the ones listening to this podcast are less likely to be using Facebook, for example, but you think about middle America or, or middle anywhere and they're much more likely to be using it and that's why these usage numbers continue to go up. And I wonder how many of the, those folks know about this kind of thing. That concerns me, but it's the same thing. It could, you're right, it could be Rupert Murdoch. It could be Rupert Murdoch, Murdoch fiddling with the publishers or it could be Jeff Bezos, though I feel like he's been pretty emphatic about stating that he's not interested in doing that with the Washington Post and and interestingly enough, and I thought this was actually pretty cool, um, there was a Washington Post article that actually had a link to a book that was referenced. So it was re- there was an article referencing a book and then it had a link off to Amazon, buy this book now. And I was like, okay, I can see where this is going. And I kind of like that model better because I understand how it's making money and I'm not necessarily, it, it feels like there's less editorial influence. Like I understand how the money's being made and it's not being made the advertisers coming in and saying, you have to say nice things about me. It's like, okay, every time we reference something on a Washington Post article and people might be interested in buying it, we're going to send you off to Amazon. It's almost like the Washington Post becomes like I can see that being the equivalent of a new classifieds or a new uh, a new classifieds in the new world model. Like I think that was actually really cool, and it feels like there's less editorial influence. But so wait, wait, wait. Your point so, is wait, well so made. do you do you? So that doesn't at all raise questions in your mind. If you were to read a book review in the Washington Post, uh, that doesn't that doesn't change your your feeling about what about the quality of that book review. Well, I'd like, so here's the thing. I'd like to understand, and I'm, I'm guessing given the nature of the Washington Post, this will come up and it will get addressed. I would like to understand the nature of how they're choosing where to put things. And for example, I can see a world in which, I mean, increasingly, there was a great article that we should link to uh, today, and, and we might even talk about it later, that Clay Shirky wrote about the future of journalism but I can see a world where the, the newspaper, like the paper-based delivery mechanism starts to go away and, and newspapers are basically delivering online. And I can see a world in which uh, everything's being d- delivered digitally and there's an algorithm that goes through an article or a review or something beforehand and says, oh, look at this. It's a, it's a review posted about a product or this mentions a product or, or whatever. Uh, let's see if that's available on Amazon. Oh, it is like there's a there's a um, a link is is created off to go buy this on Amazon. Now, if if that's the way it's working, if it's just an algorithm and and I have an understanding of that, actually, yeah, I do feel kind of comfortable with that happening. Um, again, I'd also want to see like if if the Washington Post suddenly every review they write happens to be five stars for every book, then I'm going to get to be a little bit more skeptical. But if if there's some way of of uh, of satisfying me that it's it's they're not writing a review because they want to sell books they're writing a review and it just so happens that oh and if you want to buy the book after you read the review here's the link and it's actually being done by an algorithm that's searching the page rather than editors or a human coming in and saying oh we need to sell more of these books therefore you need to write a review yeah I think I could be I could get comfortable with that idea I I, I, I mean I I just don't understand where you are drawing the line between uh, the Washington Post, including winks to Amazon. And and to be fair, the Washington Post said it was a quote unquote an accident um, after lots of people. Oh, really? About it. But regardless, what, what, it doesn't really impact our discussion. Um, I don't understand where you draw the line between that 
and and a quote unquote native ad on BuzzFeed where it's clearly stated at both the top and bottom that this is sponsored by Pepsi or sponsored by Virgin Airlines or or whoever it might be. Like why does why does the latter bother you more than the former? Especially since the former, you're depending on some sort of like unspoken assumption that the links have no impact on the content. Whereas in the other one, it's quite clear. It says it has the logo right there. Like the 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 bias in the article is is up front. So I, mean, I like transparency. I, it, I, I like um, yeah. I, I think transparency is good, but I think motivations are more important. And um, an article that is created uh, an an article that is created. Um, because a sponsor has come along and said, we want this created is one thing. An article that's created and then it's like, oh, hey, there's a product link to this or, or there's a product mentioned to the, in this, like we can link off to a website. Like, I, I don't know. It's the motivations in it that that I think are the difference for, for me. Now, I would want to better understand the motivations and I'd love to see if this becomes a regular thing on the Washington Post. I'd love to see some clear statement around what the motivations are and how this is going to work between cross-linking to Amazon or whatever. But I actually, yeah, I'm more comfortable with the I'm more comfortable with the Washington Post Amazon model than the BuzzFeed Pepsi uh, model. I mean, let's let's look at it from another direction. Uh, there, mm. uh, the uh, Republicans um, just had a new House whip because Eric Cantor lost his primary, so he's stepping down from Congress. You know, the sooner to get into a nice lobbying position. Um, so his replacement, uh, is, is this, is this congressman from Louisiana who has previously not done very much fundraising. He's been in a safe district, et cetera. Um, suddenly, and we, you know, he suddenly elected the house whip and now he's getting all kinds of new contributions. Uh, and immediately one of the very first companies contributed to him was Amazon, um, which makes sense. Amazon, we've, we've talked about Amazon. We've talked about the potential antitrust issues with Amazon, um, it certainly makes sense they want to have influence. Um, and it certainly would be in Amazon's favor if there were, say, a very large influential newspaper in the nation's capital that were advocating on their behalf. Uh, we have no idea when and if the Washington Post writes about Amazon if if Jeff Bezos has any sort of influence on it. Um, the The... We have no idea when Business Insider writes about it. At least Business Insider says every time they write about Amazon, they say that Bezos is an, is an investor. Um, like, I, I, I honestly, like, I, I'm not trying to 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 generate discussion or disagreement here. I, I honestly cannot wrap my head around why that bothers you less than an article that has a logo of the company that paid to sponsor it, and it says this is sponsored content, like. My my position in all of this is like bias is in endemic in anything. It's inherent in everything. It's always been there. What's great about the internet is the internet brings transparency, and that's pretty darn transparent. And and so t- I, I just I honestly don't understand why that bothers you more than what I just articulated. Or maybe maybe it doesn't. I'm I'm, I'm misunderstanding your position. Mm, so I I think. I think so politics is an interesting example. I think I think transparency is a good thing, but I don't think in and of itself it's enough. And I'm more interested in the motivations of the people that are that are doing something and, and politics is a good example. We have fantastic transparency around who's donating what to who. Uh, I, I that's don't, not true. 
but we can. That's well, I mean, like, well, let, I mean, the fact that you're able to tell me that Amazon has suddenly donated this much to the House Whip, like, I, I mean, I, I, like that. That's a that's a fair degree of transparency. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, it's a fair degree of transparency, right? But I, I. <laughs> The, the I, less interesting to me is the transparency because it's not resulting in politicians. I mean, this is going back to a previous conversation that we had around getting money out of politics. I don't think the problem is we need better transparency around whose money is flowing what. I don't think that's going to fix the fundamental issue. I think we need, uh, in the instance of politics, there's a lot to be said for getting money out. Now, I, I think there's a parallel, and I'm, I'm doing this a little bit on the fly. Like, I'm trusting my gut here. I, I prefer a model in which the, the, editor, the, the, the traditional editorial model, like a Washington Post reporter with an, edit, with an editor uh, acting as some kind of firewall, like, I trust the motivations of that person more than I trust... Um, a, a BuzzFeed reporter, like, it, and obviously BuzzFeed is just creating lists, but some equivalent of like sponsored content where it starts moving up market and then you have corporations sponsoring news reports. Like I would prefer to live in the world where um, Amazon is making, uh, well, what the Washington Post is making money or survives on the basis of the fact that when it references products, it links off to Amazon. So it's effectively like, a referral network. Like I prefer that model than the idea that companies go into these news generating organizations, say, here's a hundred thousand dollars. Here's the outcome I want. Now go make it. You're, happen. you're living, like, you're, you're, you're living in these two fantasy worlds on both sides on the Buzzfeed side. Like, I, I don't know what you're imagining happens. It's quite straightforward. They go there and they ask, and they create a sponsored article that is very transparent in its motivation. The motivation is to is to create a humor or or some sort of emotional attachment to the brand that sponsors it. Like and and so what's to stop them from when BuzzFeed stops starts going up market that rather than it being a funny list like it's under the guise of serious news. And like the point is that it it Everything on BuzzFeed, if BuzzFeed starts publishing sp sponsored content that doesn't say it's sponsored content, obviously that's a problem. But the way to deal with that is is through like that. That's but the problem with that is the end of transparency. Like you're so that's my point. That's fantasy number one is you're imagining this outcome that is not existing currently. And if it exists, then obviously that will be a problem and we'll we'll, we'll deal with that when we get there. On the flip side, the Washington Post is not going to survive based on referral income. I mean, by all accounts, it supports Marco Ahmed's headphone habit. Um, I'll put a link in here where he talks about it. But like, it's not going to support the organization. Like, they they are going to support. They're supporting. To be perfectly frank, they're they're going to be supported off of Jeff Bezos' pocketbook because that's a whole separate discussion about the problem with with print newspapers, which we've touched on here and there throughout. Um, right. And and moreover, you're like this. I don't under. I honestly don't understand this blind faith in this unnamed editor. Like, I, I personally, uh, you know, over the, over the time, like what I like about the internet, what I think is great about the internet, is the fact that stuff is picked apart by people all over the place. 
and it's out there and everyone can see it and can be picked apart. And other people can write posts about it and they can argue against it and they can say, oh, this is the problem there. And they can uncover who's there. Um, one thing that's not being uncovered is, again, everything that's happening behind the scenes at the post or, or places like that. Like I, I, I know I know pretty clearly how BuzzFeed makes their money. Um, and I feel pretty comfortable that, you know, there's a BuzzFeed reporter in Ferguson. I feel pretty comfortable that uh, that's a bad example. But I feel pretty comfortable that that whatever <laughs> whatever uh, there's a bad the reason it's a bad example is because I'm sure that Jeff Bezos is not influencing the Washington Post coverage of Ferguson either. But like uh, this like what I like about BuzzFeed is it's so explicit. It's so explicit about where what the money that pays the bills is going towards. It's far less explicit in the case of the Post, and it's certainly. And it's less explicit in the case of the Wall Street Journal and whatever strings Rupert Murdoch is pulling. And like um, it's far less explicit in the case of NBC and Comcast. Like I, I don't know what, what's happening behind the scenes. And I don't I don't trust this unknown editor. Like I. I OK. I guess that's just a, a, a different a different. Uh, we're coming from different spots on this. Right. I, I, I mean, I I understand what you're I I understand and to a certain extent I agree I'm I guess I'm thinking about it in terms of just how closely journalists or people creating content end up to the source of um the well, oh, the I guess I, mean, the, the, yeah. the, 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 I, th- I said this at the beginning last time this is the longest follow-up ever but um uh, like the the best way I think to get independent news is to have journalists who are confident they'll have, they'll have food on their table. And in the case of the Washington Post, like literally everyone there is is dependent on Jeff Bezos. Like I actually feel better about BuzzFeed being dependent on a wide array of sponsors who who create content that has their logo on it than I am than I am about about the other. Like we're basically trusting that Bezos is doing the right thing. Despite the fact he has massive conflicts of interest when it comes to the U.S. government in particular, we're trusting that Rupert Murdoch is doing the right thing. Despite the fact he's exceptionally political and and has been, you know, we just look at the stuff that he and his organizations have been accused of and convicted of. Right. And I, yeah, so in terms of an articulation that makes me question the argument that I've made, that is, that is, um, the one about making sure journalists have food on the table, I think, is a is a fantastic articulation of that. Um, it's just there's still something inside of me that says, um, in in the, I mean, I guess it's yes, they are political. Like both both um, Bezos and, and I mean Rupert Murdoch, these are political characters. But at the same time, um, so are all the corporations that. Um, end up putting money into the articles that BuzzFeed create. And BuzzFeed's, I mean, to be fair, it, it's almost an unfair comparison because I, I, BuzzFeed's not at the place where really people are going to BuzzFeed to get the best of new, like like high quality journalism, at least not yet. And that's not to say that it's not going to be in the future because I actually think it might be. But then I, maybe maybe my argument is just better the devil you know. Like I'd rather... And and I understand your point about transparency as well. And I, I don't know, like I, I, there is something about the way the New York Times is structured that makes me more inclined to trust it 
um, the the yes, the editor, um, yes, the 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 types of people, the journalists that that work there, and the deep principle belief. Like I can't imagine them wanting to sit down uh, with with someone who has deep pockets and 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 like okay, like what is it that you're hoping to achieve in terms of um, clicks or changing people's point of view. Like, I just can't imagine a journalist in that world doing that. But I extrapolating out the BuzzFeed world, given the closeness with which the people who are, um, the, the closeness with which people who are creating the content are working with, um, working with people who are paying the money, like extrapolating that out, it just gives me cause for concern. Now, I, that's not to take away from the point you just made about like the best way to keep independent journalism alive is to make sure the journalists are well fed. Like I think that's a great articulation of the point and you're giving me cause. There's something inside my gut that's just not willing to let go on 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 the devil I know, I guess. Fair enough. And uh, there is a one correction. I did say that BuzzFeed doesn't uh, BuzzFeed does pay to seed some of their some of their posts. So like Facebook ads and stuff like that. I Right. I, you, I think you mentioned this. You were right last time. I, I, I suggested they didn't, but they, they definitely do. So um, my bad on that. Thanks for whoever uh, called that out. Um, so speaking of algorithms and all this sort of stuff, um, you know, in, and especially in light of what's happening, uh, you know, in, in Ferguson and stuff like that, uh, Matthew uh, Ingram uh, wrote, uh, wrote, wrote a very interesting piece in, in, in GigaOM, um, basically talking about how differently the news is being experienced on Twitter as opposed to Facebook. And basically mm. the, the fact that um, at least in his experience and the people that he talked to and followed uh, Ferguson and what was happening there was all over Twitter. Um, but it was really nowhere to be found on Facebook and like why, why that might be and how much did the algorithm have to do with that and how much did the fact that Facebook only has a like button have to do with that. Um, well, how much is the fact that, 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 well, yeah, I mean, I, I, this, this kind of reaches, maybe I'm overreaching here, but it kind of reaches back to the previous conversation in that Facebook has aligned what it presents to people much more closely with the interests of advertisers than Twitter has. In what way? Well, I, I mean, I, so, so the, the, Let's think about it in terms of profitability. Like I feel like like the the organizing principle around Twitter's timeline is not what content is most popular. It's like users have a choice around um, users have a choice around who they follow and what material gets presented with to them. And I know we're about to talk about how that's slowly starting to change. And I I, th- I think the 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 argument will be it's it's to allow them to start engaging people more. And I think behind that again is, is like a revenue concern. Facebook has, is two steps ahead of them in that sense in that you don't, you don't have any say over what's presented in your feed. Like they've already done experiments to figure out how, I mean, we, we've talked about the experimentation previously, but I feel like they're much more closely aligned with advertisers and getting people to engage with the platform in a way that drives ad revenue. And I, to my mind, when I saw what Matthew wrote, I was like, well, it makes sense. Uh, in terms of like keeping people engaged with advertisers, like presenting news like this doesn't really, I, I'm just not sure it's going to help advertisers in any way. Twitter, on the other hand, is more insulated from it at the moment. And as a result, you're much more likely to see 
news that relates to big and important things than you will on Facebook. Are you saying that Facebook is perp- is somehow purposely suppressing, not Ferguson per se, but news um, in order to better appeal to advertisers? I don't think the link is quite that direct. I think the link is more, they've done a lot of, they've probably done a bunch, so I'm probably in more hypothesis territory, but, and, and I, again, I'm flying a little bit by the seat of my pants here, but here's, here's what I thought when I read that news. Facebook has figured out, I mean, I think you talked about it or, or at least in that update, it's like you see news, um, it's like a whole stream of ALS um, ice bucket challenges when you log onto Facebook. And my expectation is, and, and relating to this like button is like, it's designed for like positive stuff. People go there and it's it's positive engagement. It's it's things people like and they, I my, my suspicion is that they looked at when people presented negative news, like they presented more negative stuff on, the, on Facebook's newsfeed. And my suspicion is that engagement on the platform dropped as a result of that. Now, engagement on the platform ends up, be, ends up being, I'm sure, correlated to the amount of money that, that Facebook makes through ad revenue, right? Like if users are on it more, they're more likely to see ads, they're more likely to engage with it. Twitter, by virtue of it not having an algorithm, or at least up until this point, that controls what you see in your newsfeed, you get to decide much more. It's much less a function of what advertisers want you to see. It's it's not it's not designed around maximizing your engagement, or at least it hasn't. It's it's probably less profitable as a result of that. I I, I realize this thought isn't entirely fully formed but am i am i starting to make yeah, sense yeah no I, I i'm on the same page as you i think it's i think it's interesting because um matthew presents it in this article as you know in this case twitter being superior to facebook but as you just noted when it comes to a revenue generation standpoint and a profit standpoint facebook is much better than twitter and i suspect that the two things are are connected like I absolutely we, we agree. talked about um, previously, I, perhaps it was in the last episode about BuzzFeed and stuff that uh, newspapers have always made all their money on the soft on the soft stuff on the style section mm. on the comics page. Like uh, uh, those parts of the newspaper are where advertisers want to be. They want to be you know in the real estate section. They want to be they want to be with that sort of content. And whereas and it was those were the parts that paid for the news side, which has always been unprofitable. Like in advertisers don't like being in the new section, um, and in this case, what's what's kind of interesting is Facebook. It's almost like those. It worked for the newspaper because it was all a bundle, uh, but mm. in in this case, Facebook and Twitter are two different companies. So Facebook has all the soft stuff, and it works very well for advertising. Whereas Twitter uh, gets all the hard stuff, which is awesome for making it a news source. And Twitter has been incredible this week. Uh, you know, particularly, I mean, last night was really interesting because um, we won't, I was, we'll avoid the, the politics. Of the, well, maybe we will. Um, yeah. But like, basically the police forced out all the media and, and everyone turned off. And then by all, according to Twitter, like that's when things got way worse. Like that's when the tear gas really came out, all sort of stuff. And like, we, there's no way we would have ever known that without Twitter. And, uh, right. and, and in this case, like Twitter as a news source is is yes it has all the issues like can we verify it what's true what's not but there's no question it, it's had this seismic effect on the world primarily as through being a news source 
but it, news has never been very profitable. And I, I it's yeah. pro- probably not unrelated that Twitter's not particularly profitable either. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think the point is well made. It's I yeah, I think it's really well made, and I just can't escape the fact. This is the thing. Like, this is why I, if I get the choice between spending time on Twitter and spending time on Facebook, and maybe this is just a personal thing, I love Twitter. I get to, I understand what's being presented to me and why. There's no algorithm sitting behind the newsfeed on Twitter determining what I see and what I don't. I'm very much in control. Facebook, on the other hand, there's an algorithm determining what I see and what I don't. And my underlying assumption with that is like, they are optimizing what I see and what I don't. Yes, to increase my engagement on, on the platform, but fundamentally the reason why they're doing that is to sell more ads. So it's fundamentally people who are spending money on advertising, which I'm assuming is typically large corporations, determining what I see when I log into Facebook. Whereas when I'm on Twitter, it's, it's like this is what the people who I choose to follow are showing me and it's not being filtered in any way whatsoever. And the difference between the two kind of speaks to the discussions we've been having over the last couple of days. Like it's this Facebook is like when it like if you're trying to sell ads, you're a, you're a company that's trying to sell ads for these large corporations. Like it's this candy coated world where there are no problems or if they are, it's the problems are, are being solved by people tipping buckets of ice water on themselves. Whereas there's this other world happening out there with Twitter where there are these real problems and you're getting insight into it and it's not being filtered at all. Yeah, and and I think uh, another way to think about it is if you've been on a Twitter client and you see these tweets coming about Ferguson and then like an ad pops up, it's so just horribly out of place. And it's like certainly is not what the advertiser was going for um, by any means. Uh, but if I may be contrarian, uh, it's Please. <laughs> it, just to point out a, a juxtaposition in your position, um, mm. you're basically saying you like Twitter because you know exactly what you're getting and why you're getting it. You No, what I'm saying is I there's no filtration of what I'm seeing based on someone else's, uh, based on, there's no filtration of what I'm seeing. There's no algorithm sitting between me and the news source. So this this kind of speaks to the previous conversation. I'm concerned that in, in the BuzzFeed world, in the Facebook world, in the world where advertisers have undue influence over what gets presented, I get this candy-coated uh, candy-coated view of the world where I feel like, and maybe maybe I'm stretching the comparison too far and I'm sure you'll point me out if I'm not, I feel like the Twitter version of the world is more like the traditional press where you have these independent, these people who are out there who are, are, are into these things and I've found them and I like them because I've seen their work and I trust them and I'm getting, a re- I'm getting their point of view on what's happening. I don't understand though why I'm a little unclear why the Facebook algorithm is the same thing as as BuzzFeed though because my whole point is what what what's good about the BuzzFeed model is it's very clear what's sponsored and what's not whereas in whereas in the newspaper world like there's a whole murky thing in the background that we don't know about like it 
Well, there's the murky thing in the background on Twitter. Like, I don't know the individual motivations of all the people reporting on Twitter. Like, there's no way of me knowing whether there's some big corporation out there paying someone to say these things. But I've come to form my own point of view. And what they say and when it's presented to me isn't being done, like, I don't know. It's just where the, yeah, I, I understand. It's, I, again, I'm still flying a little bit by the seat of my pants as I think about this, but I, I, I trust the individual more than I, when, when they're out there and I think they're independent and I form my view on them as opposed to like corporations either going to someone and saying, do this for me and here's some money to do it. Or in the Facebook world, which is like, we're going to spend money and with, with a company and therefore what it presents to you is determined to maximize your engagement, to maximize your clicks or views on ads. I mean, I, I, Maybe it's not perfectly parallel. I, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm not buying the parallelism, I guess. I, I, I understand your okay. concern uh, with, with Facebook. Um, and I, I guess, well, I guess this is, this is interesting, an interesting segue to, to kind of a broader a broader question. And, and yes, it, if we go to Twitter's changes, um, you know, first off, uh, well, this podcast is kind of like my daily updates this week. I've been talking about this stuff, but like Twitter, <laughs> um, Twitter said they were going to do this stuff like a year ago. Um, like this shouldn't be like they, 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 they shouldn't be a surprise to a surprise to anyone. Um, and basically what's happening is the dis- the old discover tab is becoming the timeline. Like and so, there, people's other people's faves have shown up in the Discover tab for quite a while, and now they're showing up in the timeline. Mm. Uh, the, you know, people following other people has shown up in the Discover tab for a while, now it's showing up in the timeline. Um, and in the long run, it's very easy to see that kind of the next step or this the, the step a few down yeah. the road is is cutting out tweets that are uninteresting, right? Well, we're going to add more that are interesting. We're going to take out ones that are that are uninteresting. Yeah, and then like the fundamental, yeah, and like the fundamental. At some point, the fundamental nature of Twitter has changed because you're not choosing it. You're not no longer in control of exactly what you're seeing. The the, the quote unquote right. Twitter algorithm is, and and then I mean, like the next logical step for for my in that course of events is like. Twitter is making money off advertising. Therefore, advertisers are going to start to factor in the the interests of advertisers are going to start to factor in very heavily in terms of what starts getting displayed on well, the timeline. Well, I mean, it's even more banal than that. I mean, it's, it's just at the end of the day, Twitter is a public company, and they they do have financial issues. They have growth issues, and um, it, when you look at Twitter just from a very objective. Uh, business oriented sort of perspective uh you like these are change these are probably necessary changes and and same thing with facebook what facebook does is they're doing they're doing the right thing by their shareholders and and by you know by facebook and i guess that raises kind of a a bigger kind of societal question like um about what what can be done? What is this inevitable? Like basically, I, I'm generally uh, less critical of the stock market and, and all that sort of stuff than most than most people. But we, we are seeing something valuable from a news perspective, in particular, um, losing its edge, and we're, and it's happening because of the need of the need to make money and of the need to satisfy shareholders and. 
and that's uh, it's it's unfortunate i guess i'm not sure what else to say I mean, I agree. I, you you talk about your trust in the internet being um, founded on the fact that everyone has um, a voice, and these things get um, these things get aired and written about. I can't help but think that the reason that people like you and I and the folks listening to this podcast have that point of view is actually in part driven by Twitter. It's like a big it's a big part of discovery of these news items of things that otherwise don't get reported on. And what, like, it's, it's actually kind of sad to me to think about, I'm, I'm extrapolating out, who knows how it all plays out, who knows what, what rules they put in place or don't. But it's kind of sad to think about the fact that Twitter might start to look a bit more like Facebook. And I, I like in terms of discovery of these big news items, in terms of following along of events like Ferguson, I rely really heavily on it. And it, it concerns me that 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 influence, like it's it's suddenly uh, like, where do I where do I go to find out about these things? Right. Like if it's not Twitter, then I'm relying on the front page of some news site or something. I, I don't actually I don't trust Facebook anymore. We've already seen it's full of. Um, ALS, like ice bucket challenges. Like I go to Twitter because I trust Twitter and these are the first steps down the path towards, man, I'm not sure I can trust Twitter anymore to give me a, an unfiltered feed of what's happening from people that I choose to follow. Where, where do I go? Well, I mean, the, to be fair, there's a, there's, it, it, it's a very long path to, to Facebook. Um, yes, I, I hope it is. I hope it's one they don't walk. I mean, but I guess, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's again, like I'm not, I'm not particularly, I, I, I really am not, can't be particularly, uh, mad at Twitter per se. Um, I yeah. think, I mean, I think if I'm mad at Twitter, I think, I think it's because the people in charge of Twitter kind of feel like the people in charge of Twitter don't really understand Twitter. Um, it really bothered me that they hired a new head of product, Daniel Graff, who had never tweeted until he got the job. Um, I mean, mm. it just, Kind of boggles my mind how that person can be head of product. Um, on the other hand, there is, you know, there's there's something to be said for you can't grow beyond your base if you're captive, you know, without making some hard yeah. hard choices. I mean, that's right. And so maybe that's, I mean, that that decision perhaps could be driven by the fact that there's this amazing tool that um, that some small percentage of the world uh, uses and loves, but there's also something about it and the way it's presented to people who haven't invested the time or aren't used to it that just isn't helpful. And so maybe maybe that decision was made on the basis of the fact that they're like trying to reach beyond their base and they're trying to broaden adoption in and of itself. I mean, it's, I, I'm not willing to damn them on the back of that, but again, you start messing with my timeline. Hmm. Well, I mean, so here's, <laughs> here's kind of a fundamental question, I guess, because Twitter, Twitter could not have, have come about um, without venture capital, without the patience of investors, frankly, um, you know, as they kind of figured stuff out over a very long time. Um, and at some point, those investors do need to get a return on their capital. And so Twitter does need does need to grow. It does need an IPO. Um, at that point, it now has public shareholders and there's, it needs to it needs to grow. It needs to drive profits like what like. 
I, I guess I, I'm not sure like what what there is to be upset about in a way, right? Like, I mean, from from that point of view, I think you're absolutely right. At least in the in the old world way of doing things, yeah. Like, what do, what do you do? I, the only counterexample I can potentially think of is the funding model that the Guardian has, which is basically someone with lots of money who decided that uh, journalistic independence was very important, and I think bequeathed this massive trust and the sole purpose of it was to make sure that the guardian presented a fair and unbiased point of view and yeah they have other revenue sources but like that's enabled them to continue in an otherwise difficult climate like i don't know it would be i i i feel like twitter to me it's for our generation it's almost of of equal, if not greater importance than any one single news source. And yeah, so in the old way of doing things, that's the only way I can think of that it, it like it possibly survives. But otherwise, like, yeah, you're exactly right. Like they have shareholders, they need to make a profit. Like, of course, uh, like you, you look across the fence, you look down the valley, you, you, you know, down to Menlo Park and you see Facebook making all this money by selling the soft stuff and hiding the hard stuff. And it's like, okay, well, that's what gets engagement. That's what gets advertisers happy. I guess we need to walk down that path too. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is um, that I feel like there's going to be a lot of complaints, especially people can hear what we've been talking about and they're, and they're going to start decrying the entire model and talk about how capitalism is terrible and VC sucks and, um, Wall Street's the problem. But I think what, what is really important to understand about this is Twitter could not have come to being without all that stuff. Like the Twitter is a, the sort of company, the sort of service that could only ever have been created, could only ever have found its feet, and could only ever have, have spent nearly a decade now, um, coming eight years, mm. uh, you know, figuring it out to become what it is today without people who were willing that had the sort of patient capital to make that happen. I mean, you couldn't have had someone saying, I want to create, like you, no one thought up Twitter. One thought it was stupid when it, it was the classic example of a company being stupid. Right. Um, and I guess it's, it's a bummer if, if it goes, I mean, hopefully think it works out and it's, they make a few small changes and their engagement numbers work and their ad, the ad starts, you know, all that sort of stuff. If it, if the worst case scenario happens, um, it would be a bummer to be sure. Um, but I, I guess I'm, you can't really use it to, to damn the system because it wouldn't have existed in the first place without it. Yeah. It's it, that's, it, it wouldn't have existed. It wouldn't have been, well, it see, is that, is that really true? I mean, so maybe, maybe bringing this, in at <laughs> this late in the podcast is an unreasonable thing to do. But you, oh well, I think I saw it first off your tw uh, your Twitter feed, or maybe it was somebody else's, this video about how um, it, it basically related to the discussion we had last week around um, challenging fundamental assumptions. And just because, you know, we moved from the, ag the agricultural era to the industrial era and we found lots of uses for human employment, it doesn't necessarily mean that as we move from the industrial era to this information era, that the same is going to happen. And they use this um, 
<laughs> they use this incredibly an incredibly powerful analogy of like you think of yourself as a horse um, in the in the agricultural revolution, and you see these machines coming along, and you're like, "Don't worry about it." Like they've always found new uses for us. And then it goes on to make this point that horses um, horses didn't lose their jobs because um, they became fundamentally lazy as a species. They lost their jobs because like enough change that suddenly there wasn't any any point to having them around anymore and it, it's had me thinking and I'm, I again this this seems to be the theme for me for this episode so uh, please forgive me because the thoughts aren't entirely fully formed uh, is it the case that uh, that that article we read about you know assumptions fundamentally changing and therefore we need to start changing the way we think about things. If we, if there's a possibility that we're moving into this world where a large portion of the human population actually um, isn't going to potentially have gainful employment, uh, is it is it the case that the, 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 the capitalist system that's been so effective in getting us to this point perhaps doesn't function quite so well in this future state when um, the the nature of the resources that are required for, for humans to continue to progress, perhaps it's actually not the best system. And and this Twitter argument is, is actually, well, this Twitter discussion is actually one example where I'm, I'm wondering about it. It's like, like it's something about this doesn't feel right, that this amazing tool has been created that is enabling people to understand news that's happening all, all around the world. And we're projecting a future where that gets deconstructed because the fundamental motivations for the people who are working there is, to, is, is, is fundamentally financially based because of the capitalist system. And, and that's worked really well in the previous two eras. But I'm wondering whether, and again, no fully formed thoughts, but I'm wondering whether and like the assumptions are starting to change such that maybe capitalism, like in a, in a world where 90% of the human population or, or more or maybe less, I don't know, but like a large percentage of the human population isn't able to be gainfully employed. And that video makes such a strong case for it. We should link to it. Like maybe we need to be maybe we need to start thinking about different systems ourselves because it it, it might not continue to work in the future. I think the video is bullshit, uh, and pri- oh, wow. primarily really? because of the horse analogy. Uh, and okay. because because I me mean, more. as you just articulated, the entire premise of the video rested on that analogy. Um, like that was that was the would you agree that was the linchpin for basically the entire message? I, I um is it the linchpin? I I think. But, so I mean, it was it was the it was the it was the linchpin in terms of the story, but I don't think it was the linchpin in terms of the principle. I think the principle, the linchpin principle, was the linchpin principle of that article that we talked about previously, which is like the fundamental assumptions have changed. Uh, it's all it, it's it's like the it's like the it's uh, Naylor uh, Black Swan guy Nasim Naylor. It's like the turkey's always been. Um, well fed and well looked after and uh, you know and it thinks that that's going to continue indefinitely into the future without realizing that the reason it's being well fed and well looked after is because thanksgiving is coming up um fair enough i, I think though like uh, so basically the thing with the video is i thought 95 percent of it was great but I-, I felt that the message of the video was powered by this idea that uh horses 
aren't lazy. They're just not needed. And the problem, (laughs) the problem with that is, uh, last time I checked, uh, horses aren't capable of, of like learning new things. I mean, like beyond like what they're like fundamentally, fundamentally capable of. And what, if anything distinguishes humans from a horse or from any other animal is our capacity to learn and our capacity. Like we're not the fastest animal in the world. We're not the strongest animal in the world, but we've been able to make tools. We've been able to, to create things. We've been able to have a, as far as we know, self animals, a sense of soul and a sense of, of mindfulness. Uh, and if you think about it, a lot of the jobs that have been created since then are, deal very much in these areas. I mean, my dad is a psychologist, for example. Like he 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 talks to people who have you know broken lives and their and their and and makes a very decent living doing that. Like that, a horse can't do that, and uh, and that is one of the jobs at the time of the industrial revolution you could not have imagined. I mean, I guess priests priests yeah. did that sort of thing, I suppose. Um, but but so they, they actually do a statistical analysis of this and maybe it's flawed. I didn't look into it, but they basically went through the largest employers of, I, I th- was it the American public? It was the largest employers of some subset, some population. And basically in terms of the volume of employers, the highest one was like in of these quote unquote new professions was like 29 or something. Like, what are you going to do with all the truck drivers when, yeah, sure. People learn, but what are you going to do with truck drivers when trucks start driving? No, I know. It, and that was, and that was a fair point. Like the, I think the point was the biggest was the transportation industry. But again, like the, the previous largest employer, 98% of the society was, was in agriculture. And, and again, I, I appreciate your point. You're saying that we shouldn't just because we found new jobs for these people um, doesn't mean that will necessarily happen again. I, I, I get that and I appreciate that. At the same time, uh, I, I, I do sense a very um, – the sort of inherent pessimism there, uh, like the main argument in favor of it is, one, I can't imagine these jobs would be – and two, don't tell me it happened before because it, the past isn't a predictor of the future. Like, th- yeah, that's possible. On the flip side is, uh, is one, I can't imagine jobs today. But two, there's no way in heck I could have imagined these jobs before and, and somehow they came about. Um, like, and so mm. at, at worst, it's, it, I would say it's a 50-50 chance. Um, moreover, uh, the, the net result to date uh, and this is where I think a lot of people kind of it's very easy to miss is the story of the last 20 or 30 years, particularly in the United States, has been has been of stagnation, of people losing jobs and of, of increased unemployment in most of the West. Mm. Um, but if you look at it globally, the the population as a whole is much better today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Like what, what has been what yeah. has been hurting people to date has been things like jobs moving to places like China, to places like Vietnam, to places like like Laos, to, to places to places where you need less educated people, right? And and eventually those places are going to develop, and 
and and where do we go then? Like I, I've heard this argument before, and it and I think it's fantastic that we're pulling all these people out of poverty, but at the same time, I play it out in my head. Like where do we go now? We can't have. I I, I mean I I applaud you and what you've managed to build with strategy and and so on, but you are you are such a smart guy and the 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 number of people that are able to and so, and maybe I'm making a flawed assumption that these creative jobs are the only ones because we kind of made that argument in the rainforest episode these are the kinds of jobs that are going to emerge but I think the percentage of the human population that's capable of doing something like what you're able to do is so small that I, and and this is what came back and made me question like if we're heading into this future where um, there are a small percentage of people that can make an outsized contribution and and things like uh, things like transportation truck drivers are going away and the ways in which people can make it they have to be in order to be able to make a contribution they have to be so specialized and so knowledgeable or so creative it's going to leave a large percentage of the population without anything to do that's a very fair point and i think we should have made it better that uh I mean, part of the whole thing of being on the jungle floor is uh, there's lots of niches to fill, but the nature of the internet is such that only a couple people can fill them. Once they're filled, they're filled. Um, and right. and the reach you can get means only, there will only be a few winners. Totally fair. And I don't believe, and I, I, I agree it is flawed to think that jobs like mine are going to be the solution to to automation. Um so I I, I, mean, I completely yeah. agree, and I think that's a very fair point. I and I, I you know I I've like and I'm sure like a lot of folks like for like, like like finding ways of giving back, and one of the ways in which I I do that is like mentoring young people who for whatever reason reach out and say, hey, I'm not sure what to do, and one of them who's been um who's been doing he's, he's like an artist. He's like, well, you know what? Like if all else fails, there's always the military, which is, which is a, a, a culturally like quite accepted in the United States. But I think out to this world where increasingly you have these autonomous drones, like, like the ability for robots to outperform humans in, a, in, a, in, in so many of the fields that take up so much of the employment and then where people like that, where they're going to go to be able to make a contribution and what they're going to be able to do, I, I just don't know. I can't, and maybe this is just a, a, a fault of my inner, this is my inability to predict out where these new jobs are going to be created. But but I can't see where they're going to go, where they're going to be able to make a contribution to the human race. Like I, I start to wonder, it's like, okay, Maybe again, maybe I'm being completely unfair. I'm not able to predict what these jobs are going to be, but I just start to so, worry about it. So the the steam engine, I think, is, is is or is one of the things that's associated with kind of being in the industrial revolution or or the turbine or mm. something along those lines. Um, that was first kind of came out in like the 1600s. Um, maybe 1781 mm. was James Watt patented like the ro- 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 rotative motion, um, but. Uh, the we talked about today like a, a replacement for a lot of farm workers was like transportation. That's kind of one of the contentions in the video. And um, yeah. the transportation, the cars didn't really come about until the, till the 1900s, as in uh, several hundred years after the Industrial Revolution started. And basically, I, 
it's not like we looked back and we just snapped our fingers and went from 98% employment in agriculture to right. people having jobs in the transportation industry. And I think that's why it's no one when the industrial revolution started could could really envision that, oh, don't worry, all these people on the farms will have jobs driving trucks down Interstate 95 pretty soon. And and absolutely. You, I mean, so I, I, the, I don't yeah. I don't really um, put particular stock. No offense to you. I mean, I'm sure you're a very imaginative fellow, but I don't put particular stock <laughs> in your inability to imagine what jobs what jobs these people might, might do in the future. Yeah. So, right. Okay. That's fair. I, I mean, I think my response would be what's different this time is those were dumb machines and the machines that are being created this time are smart machines. And you take, you take an average, like just imagine an average or even, even for the sake of argument, a below average human being in a world where there are robots in the military, where there are, uh, there are robots driving trucks around that are being, det- where, where they're being, directed by algorithms there there are all these jobs that are such large employers are being replaced by smart machines now we're in a position where these smart machines are able to do these things where do those people make a contribution now yep you're right maybe you're right maybe it's just my lack of imagination but i it's i'm at the point where if we're able to create machines that are smart and that are able to outperform uh, what these people have traditionally ja- done and through uh, through the amount of data they're able to collect and the intelligence driving them, they're actually able to make better judgment calls than than a typical human being. Like, where do we put the humans? No, certainly there is going to need to be some sort of minimum floor, some sort of, you know, guarantee for people. And, um, you know, wouldn't it... <laughs> And that's certainly going to be problematic. I mean, we can't even guarantee health insurance to people so that they can, you know, with some sort of confidence, leave and start their own jobs if they have a family. Um, how on earth we're going to get to a political point where we can have, um, you know, some sort of guaranteed income is well, going to be problematic. Right. But I mean, I no, no, I agree. I bet we have a problem doing that under the existing system where the existing system is optimized around, uh, like the, the resources are allocated around under the, the, basis of capitalism right like and the basis of which is like it's just a question of challenging the fund going back and and i'm i'm i I hope i don't get branded nasty names (laughs) branded nasty left-leaning names by making this argument but it's like a case no i think we already established revisit (laughs) yeah that's right i'm on the other side right now aren't i yeah (laughs) uh that that challenging the fundamental assumptions around why we have a capitalist system in place. And in a world where we're, and I don't necessarily know what the answer is, but it's, it's like, are we starting to optimize around something else? Like, are we starting to optimize around some, and again, now I'm going to start to sound utopian, but like, like I've I've read, I've read authors who are talking about the reasons for machines to exist is, is, help humans find happiness, right? Like, do we start to think about that instead of, of letting the fundamental assumption driving our resource allocation be what creates, like fundamentally it's around optimizing for gross domestic products. And I'm just wondering whether enough assumptions have changed that we should revisit the, the underlying assumption. A lot of stuff you're saying sounds similar stuff to, similar to things that I've said in the past. Like, I certainly think there's more value than that, which can be ascribed to number two, which can be monetized. Um, right. I, I don't know. I, I kind of suspect we're just kind of, just, we're wandering around in the fog a little bit. And 
Um, not, not well, I, I yes, I, I and I mean, I, I, I think that's okay on these topics because when you, I mean, these are these are meaty things. I think you made the point that okay, it took us. There's no way that all those all those um, agricultural workers could have known that they were going to be employed as truck drivers. Like uh, there's a there's a predictive ability here that's that's probably it's definitely beyond my reach and and probably beyond yours. I'm not going to speak with definites in terms of your ability to do that. But I think I, I guess the thing for me with this is just to start asking the question rather than necessarily having the right answer. Fair enough. Good talking to you. Mate, good talking to you. See ya. All right. Sounds good. Talk to you later.